You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Martha Stewart Wine Company takes the guesswork out of wine. Every wine in the collection has been tested and approved by the queen, Martha Stewart herself. <laughs> and with prices ranging from 12 to $30, all Martha Stewart Wine Company wines are both great and affordable. They even offer free shipping when you join one of their wine club options or buy 12 bottles or more. That's easy, right? 12 Absolutely, bottles? Absolutely, I can do that. Plus, if you don't like a bottle, they'll replace it with one you will love. Get 20% off your first purchase of a bottle, pack, or club membership when you go to MarthaStewartWine.com and use promo code CRIME. CRIME. Dangerous Ground, My Friendship with a Serial Killer is the story of a bond so disturbing as it is unlikely an investigation that crosses every ethical, moral, and journalistic line imaginable. In this unprecedented and provocative crime memoir, award-winning journalist M. William Phelps unravels his destructive friendship developed over the course of five years, 7,000 pages of letters, and hundreds of conversations with the charmingly manipulative psychopath known as the Happy Face Killer. The result is one of the most radical looks into a serial killer's mind in modern-day history. Dangerous Ground is on sale now everywhere books are sold. For more info, visit mwilliamphelps.com. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about true crime, pop culture, journalism. And this week, we'll take about 20 minutes to talk about Seven Seconds, the latest limited series from Netflix. The drama explores a police cover-up of a hit-and-run accident and the fallout of the people and community affected by it. We'll also talk a little bit more about What If... OJ did it, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Joining me to dive into all of that is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and my favorite snowy day home office mate, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Rebecca. It's so good to be here. (laughs) 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 What is so funny? I don't know. You sounded like Mr. Rogers. You just sound, you sounded like we just had a marital fight and now we have to do a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, licensed private investigator, former defense investigator, and local election expert, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. That's me. I went out twice in the epic blizzard yesterday to get live on the spot results at our local polls. So. Your election coverage of the Exeter Town Meeting Election Day on Twitter <laughs> was really on point, Laura. We're, I'm very impressed. Thank you. Thank you. It was very exciting. And I, I almost crashed on the way back. So it was like, it was definitely oh. an adventure. I will say, you know, as an aside, Laura and her very, very, very hyper local coverage of her very, very hyper local local election mm-hmm. took a couple of photographs that she posted on social media that were so great. That you stole them. No, stole I them. purchased them. Oh. Yes, yes. At my news outlet, I saw them and I was like, can I use these? And she sent them to me and I was like, wait a minute. We need to buy the. Well, Laura needs to actually be like a contractor covering. We have this for a budget us. for this. And I had to laugh. I, I just have to, on as an aside, one of the pictures I sent you was this poor guy who was running for office who was shoveling the walkway <laughs> so people could get in. Yes. And unfortunately, he's the nicest guy. And and then he lost. And Rebecca said 
She felt so bad that he lost after he shoveled the walkway. And he I was didn't like, well, lose. Kinda... He got plastered. <laughs> <laughs> Poor yeah. guy. So you know the people yeah. send your mediocre photos to Rebecca Lavoie so she can purchase them. Exactly. Exactly. And finally with us, the acclaimed novelist behind the City Trilogy and podcasting's greatest skeptical foil, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Dobroho Dina. I think that's a good Which thing. Which I'm sure I massacred. But what that's, is that? Uh, Ukrainian for a good day. Thank you to Anne from Kiev, who uh, sent me that through Facebook. Hey, Anne. Told me to give it a shot. Hey, Anne from Kiev. How are you? <laughs> hey, you know, I... So, sorry. I apologize to all Ukrainians for what I... How I just butchered their language. No, that's great. We love that because you know what? I I was able to find out through our our um you know our, the back end stuff that we do that our podcast is listened in one hundred and thirty four countries. Really? Yeah. Uh, by how many people in those? Well, there's a couple of ones, like in the very small. Yeah. Those yeah. are bots. Hate to break it to you. Oh, come on now! I want to believe that somebody. No, they're in... Russians, Rebecca. They're not bots. We do have a couple of Russian hits there, but yeah, uh, yeah. those yeah. aren't real people. Oh, that's too bad. I was going to say it's like more than the the parade of nations. Yeah, sorry. Do we have the oil? Apparently, Anne really is in Kiev. Is that so... oiled man from the Republic of uh, what oh. is it, Tonga? Like, listen to our podcast. Yeah. That's Toby Ball right there, <laughs> ladies. <laughs> well, one piece of Please podcast stop. business. Uh, I just want to say next week on the program, we are going to be discussing a podcast that a lot of listeners have been talking about and that we've been seeing climb the iTunes charts. The second season of Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. That is going to be our review discussion for next week. But we're going to be talking about a whole lot more, too. So, um, But if you want to catch up on that true crime podcast, that's what we'll be talking about. So... I feel like we should play a sound effect right here. So I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm just going to drop one in in post-production. Kevin, can you point so I can do that? We are in the final four of the Discover Pods. (laughs) The Discover Bot. The Discover Pods Podcast Uh. Madness Tournament. We not only beat, but washed the floor... With S Town, the great, the greatest podcast produced in the last three years. Toby, did you see the results? I yeah, I did. It was what was it, Rebecca? Eighty-three percent to seventeen percent, roughly rounded. Yes. Oh my god! I know. I feel as though S Town didn't get the word out as effectively as we did. <laughs> Let me read uh, Kevin Goldberg's analysis blog, a little paragraph of it, uh, from the Elite Eight down to the Final Four. Um, Here's what he wrote. What, period, A, period, flex, period, S-Town, the last one seed still remaining in the Podcast Madness Tournament, was in a good position to not only come out of the true crime quadrant, but to win the entire tournament. Crime writers on, however, had other intentions. (laughs) They saw their formidable opponent and rallied the troops. Their campaigning resulted in a monumental beatdown of the top contender. The beating was so severe that I'm almost tempted to take away my previous statement of crowning them this year's Cinderella team. But I won't 
because they scare me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not us. That's our audience. Oh, we know. I mean, that's just so great. I oh, feel we, like... know. we don't actually think we're better than us. No, I know that. <laughs> but you know what? I feel like I'm Aquaman. You do? Because it's like, it just like summon fish, <laughs> point them in a direction. And it's like, hey guys, we need you to do this. So we had like thousands of people like, uh, you know, emailing and yep. voting for us. Yep. So. It's like, you know, it's like pointing a swarm of bees at somebody. It's like yes. powerful. No, I mean, ah. as we've pointed out, we are the only podcast in this tournament, I think, desperate enough to beg for votes. Yes. It also, it's very meaningful to us because we just wanted to make it out of the first round. I know. And here we are. Toby, what are your thoughts about the fact that we, um, I don't want to say uh, wipe the floor with, but we did kind of wipe the floor with the greatest podcast of the last three years, S-Town. Do you have thoughts? We cut the nets. <laughs> region. No, well, I think, you know, I think this is basically what I said last week, which I think the cool part of it is just engaging with our with our listeners and kind of seeing how sort of devoted they are to the podcast. So that, that feels good. I think there might be some allegations of like uh, election interference, but um, I know nothing about that. So yeah. I'm, I'm just going to revel in the victory right now. Yeah. And, and from Ukraine voted 57 times. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, this week we are up against wine and crime. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be totally honest. I've never listened to wine and crime. They are in the up and are the newcomers yes. quadrant. So I don't show. know what kind of competitor they're going to they're going to be. I don't know if they are also asking their listeners to vote. All I know is this is the point in the tournament. I said this last week. We're like we're super confident. But this is the point where we get knocked out, probably, right? Like maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It's uh -huh. so it's so ridiculous because right, we we wanted to get out of the first round, and it was that we got into the sweet or the what was it, the sweet sixteen? We got into the thirty-two first. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was like when they did the recap on the the website, they wrote something, and they're like about all these different shows how they did, and they didn't mention us, and I was like. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, because all these, like, we, we are, I was like the Cinderella story. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, I, I want to say I trolled, but I tweeted at Kevin Goldberg. Kevin Goldberg. And it was like, no respects. We're just going to have to win the whole damn thing. Like, <laughs> tongue firmly in cheek. And now I'm kind of like, we might win this whole goddamn thing. <laughs> and by we, I mean you, the audience. Yes, but no, we're not actually going to win because no. uh, even if we beat yes. Wine and Crime this week, which the by the way, wall. you can vote. Uh, you're going to put the link right in the show notes, right? Faux shizzle. It's discoverpods.com. That's where you can vote to uh, have a help us beat Wine and Crime. If you think we should, I'm not telling you that you you have to vote for us, mm -hmm. but if you think we should, please vote for us. Vote. The other bracket, the other contenders for the finals, the other two mm -hmm. members of the final four are Homecoming and, wait for it, this American Life, <laughs> the greatest podcast that's ever existed that made Serial and S-Town the granddaddy of all audio shows, This American Life. Can you imagine? You know what our advantage is? What's, What's that? that? There is that they probably don't even know this is going on. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin, what is Ira Glass saying about this tournament right now? Act one, Cinderella story. <laughs> Act two, don't call it a comeback. <laughs> uh, I think a great matchup would be Homecoming and Crime Writers On. If only so, Homecoming could have a chance to slap Toby and I down for dissing season two. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. I, I got to be honest, I kind of want it to be us in This American Life because that would be 
hilarious. Well, it's not up to us. It is not up to us. It's Hold up on. to you, the listener. <laughs> Are you Aquaman? I'm Aquamaning them right yes. now. Yes. Please look at the show notes, click on the link, or go to discoverpods.com and vote for us to help us get out of the final four and maybe make it to the finals <laughs> of the Podcast Madness Tournament. <sighs> Moving on. Moving on. Kevin, can you please read this for me? That one? Okay. What we learned in our continuing series. What we learned. Uh, what I learned this week was that adult film star Stormy Daniels, who is currently embroiled in a legal battle with President Trump over making details public of their alleged affair, has another talent besides legal battles and adult films. It turns out that Stormy is an accomplished equestrian. Not only that, but she does the same sport. That our very own Laura Bricker used to do eventing. Mm-hmm. Laura Bricker, yes. can you tell us about said sport and what about this sport speaks to you when it comes to the whole Stormy Daniels saga? So, yeah, eventing is like the horse world version of triathlon. It's also sometimes called combined training. So, mm-hmm. there's three phases dressage, which is like pretty and looks like horse ballet. Dancing. And they're, yeah. Um, Cross country jumping, which is um, where we saw some videos of Stormy this week, which is pretty badass. You're galloping cross country over very solid jumps that if you hit, they are not going to move. So it would not be good to you're, hit them. You're not going to knock down a rail. They are not going to knock down a rail. But then after galloping cross country over those very sturdy jumps, they have to then come back and do show jumping in a ring with the pretty little painted jumps to show that after that they can still be well-mannered enough and careful enough to not knock those over. So in the horse world, this is definitely a sport that I think of as kind of a badass sport because the cross-country jumping, you have to have some balls to do that, to be honest. Um, You know, if you look at the upper level photos, if you guys ever see videos or the pictures of the horses jumping these big giant logs or jumping into the, you know, water jumps, they have what sometimes looks like like white froth on their legs. Mm -hmm. Does anyone know what that is? Stormy Daniels? No. (laughs) It is not. Um, It's actually like grease. So if they hit a jump, they'll slide so they won't get stuck on it. Right, Mm. right. You know, this is, eventing is a super, the the cross-country jumping is super, isn't that how Christopher Reeve became paralyzed? Yes, Yes. and I have a story about that. So when I was in college, I was working at an eventing, a farm that did eventing and they had competitions and they were getting ready to put on a competition and he was supposed to come to that event. And I was like all excited to meet Superman at the last minute. He switched to go to the event where he actually ended up getting oh, hurt and wow. getting paralyzed. Wow. So my boss had like Christopher Reeve's check and she was like, oh, this kind of, you know, it was a little bit yeah. eerie yeah. Um, at that point. Yeah, Stormy's pretty badass. Her husband also competes in the sport of eventing. Yeah. Oh. And she actually rides as Stormy Crane, which is her. Crane is the last name of her husband. Stormy, of course, is her stage first name. <laughs> she doesn't want to be recognized as a well, porn star? Well, it's really funny because she has- The rider with the giant boobs? It's really funny because she has her porn star stage name and then her riding stage name, which is basically just her porn star name <laughs> with her married name after it, which is really interesting to me. But, that, but when, when I first saw this uh, footage, and I actually first saw it from a reporter friend of mine at NPR, <laughs> who's a horse person, who said that she has a lot of friends who ride at the barn where Stormy Daniels rides, and mm-hmm. everyone there like loves her. Like She's just a well-known like horse person, and like- this whole story is just swirling around them and you know as a am a very very amateur horse person myself i rode like for what three years kevin and mm-hmm. i did a little bit of dressage i rode with some people who jumped 
And I'll tell you, the personality that comes with that sport, you cannot underestimate, excuse my language, how much those people do not give a fuck. I mean, to get a 1,200-pound animal to jump over a thing and just mm-hmm. when, when you're, especially in the cross-country thing, like deciding, like, you have to do it or you will die, it says something about the person's metal, I think. So I think it's a little-known fact that as this news story develops, uh, we should pay attention to. And Laura, I'm glad to hear that you have the same kind of, of metal. You do, don't yes. you? <laughs> I, I do. Although I will say I, uh, I don't do this anymore because uh, as you get older, you don't bounce like you once did. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on. Kevin, can you please read this for me? True, not crime, update. (laughs) Well, huge story this week in New Hampshire and nationally, um, but it's a New Hampshire-based story about something we talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago. Jane Doe can still be Jane Doe. A New Hampshire judge has ruled that the New Hampshire woman who accidentally signed her $500-plus million Powerball ticket can skirt precedent and stay anonymous, despite the state lotteries having been founded on transparency. Kevin, mm-hmm. reaction to that ruling? Uh, kind of surprised, um, only because the law that Jane Doe's uh, attorneys are citing uh, right to know is is not a right to privacy act. Yeah. It's, a, it's a disclosure right. act. So I, I don't know. I guess the lottery says they're going to follow the direction of the attorney general's office, who's their lawyer. Right. So I, I don't know if there's an appeal or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. Uh, Kevin, just to remind our listeners who may have missed our conversation about that a few weeks ago, can you just recap very quickly why transparency in the lottery in New Hampshire is so important? Well, it has been sort of the hallmark since you know the government got involved in lotteries because before that it was a very underworld type of thing, numbers, games, and whatnot. And so the one of the Ways you know they were to ensure public trust in the results, uh, and that the things weren't fixed like they were with the mob was to have complete transparency about who the winners were and and, and whatnot. Uh, so you knew it didn't go to somebody's cousin, right? Right. So uh, and you can skirt that by setting up a trust and transferring the ticket in, but she just didn't do that this time. Yeah, with the with the trust laws as they were, you didn't have if you were part of a trust, the trust doesn't have to disclose who. Right. The, you can form a trust are. and sign your ticket into yeah, the trust. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, so is that a loophole? I guess it is a loophole. She, yeah. yeah, but she didn't do that, right. and so. I don't know. She wanted to get a do-over, which you know, I'm kind of wondering if you know, if I'd won 500 bucks, could I go to a judge and do that, as opposed to have won, if I won 500 million. You well, know? I will say that anybody. You know who, what Toby says? It's all about money and the justice. Anybody system. who thinks that there's no problem with privacy in the lottery, just Google lottery scandals United States, and you will see recent news about people cheating the lotteries in their states who work for the lottery, who work for stores that sell lottery tickets. And you might understand why it is that we think that transparency in the lottery is important. But one of the things that's interesting to me about this story, Kevin, is um, mm-hmm. you know when we, we've been posting stories about this in the news site where I work, and we get a ton of comments. And the comments are things like, Good for her. She deserves her privacy. And, you know, oh, well, one day when I win, I know I'd want to be private. Like, people think it's actually going to happen to them, too. <laughs> but it's sort of the magic of lottery thinking, right? Yeah, I guess. Right. I, I don't. I'm for her because I could be next. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Uh, well, Kevin, um, can you please read this one for me? Sure. Off topic, topic. Hollywood (laughs) update. (laughs) I just wanted to stray into a little bit of a different kind of territory for our discussion this week. 
Numerous news outlets, including the Washington Post and Variety, have confirmed that for the blockbuster Netflix series The Crown, star and twice Emmy Award nominated Claire Foy was paid substantially less than Matt Smith, the actor who played Prince Philip. Toby, thoughts? Um, it doesn't seem fair. Yeah. <laughs> Good thoughts. Good thoughts. Laura, thoughts? Well, I haven't seen too much about this. I mean, I guess my first question is who was negotiating with for her that didn't, you know, like her agent or whoever. Um, and I, I think the reason I think they've cited is that Matthew Smith is like more well known, like he was Doctor Who or whatever. You know, I can see it from that point of view. But when you look at the show and you think the queen got paid less than the king, I mean, that seems a little ridiculous. Right. But I'd like to know a little bit more of the background, and I'm sure it's out there. I just haven't read the articles yet about who was negotiating on her behalf when she ended up getting such a substantially less deal than he did. Right. Kevin and I have had this conversation a few times in, around their house. There was a story recently about Tracy Ellis Ross being paid substantially less than mm-hmm. Anthony Anderson for Blackish, for instance. And Kevin's, you know, and I think it's a fair, this is the devil's advocate role, is that like, this is the name that's the draw. So that person gets more money, blah, blah, blah. And my thinking is just more like the equal work kind of thing. And I, I think that the crown is like a really good example right, of right. that. You, Claire Foy is in more scenes than he is. Mm-hmm. The show is called The Crown. And who is going to watch a Netflix show about the Queen of England and watch it because the guy who used to be Doctor Who is in it? Like nobody. Show me one person who watched that show only because Matthew Smith was in it. That's the thing, right? It's more a matter of... You know, if you're going to replace them with somebody anonymous, is it going to hurt? That's the only way I can think of justifying something like that is that, you know, if we stuck like somebody random in place of Claire Foy, it wouldn't really affect things. But Matt Smith is so crucial. We have to have him. And therefore, he has greater value. Like, I don't agree with that, but I think that's the only way that you can really justify it. Yeah. Unless it's just like, you know, we're just going to pay dudes more than chicks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And um, anybody who's even watched one episode of The Crown, except maybe for that one episode on the boat, mm-hmm. Claire Foy completely outacts and is in more scenes and carries that show. Yes? No, Kevin? Yes. yes. No. Okay. I mean, it's different than like any sort of other job when you're talking about Hollywood and acting and whatnot. And so the pay is negotiated by agents and whatnot. It's not like, you know, jobs that we have. However, you know, on the Tracy Ellis Ross thing, I was kind of like, well, OK, I understand like her argument. I think that, you know, it's like uh, proportionately how much is she a lead actress? She's supporting that kind of thing. She's a lead actress. Yeah. No, no. And my point, I'm not I'm certainly not taking a position on that. I think it's very clear, though, with The Crown, <laughs> who who the main actor is. Right. And it is she. Claire Foy. So uh, that one's a little harder to do. I'm interested to in how much John Lithgow got paid to be in that show, frankly. It was really great the first season. But, but I bet that oh. I bet it was more. I bet it was more. Now that I know that, I, I wouldn't be and I wouldn't be surprised. Apparently she got even in season two after she got nominated for an Emmy for season one. Like the well, whole thing is just quite thank you. Thank you. Okay. Moving on. Um Kevin, can you please read this for me? True crime podcast update. Toby Ball. Yes. I'm gonna put you on the spot. You told me this week that you finished listening to Atlanta Monster and that you had yep. thoughts. Can you share those thoughts with us, please? So, like, if I had, if I had listened to the whole season rather than just the first however many episodes we listened to, when we kind of trashed it, I think I would have a more positive outlook on it. Hmm. And this is not universally true for all the episodes because there's a couple of episodes that are just absolutely dire. But there is interesting stuff. And it's not necessarily like we're going to find 
who the real Atlanta monster was, or unless you're super credulous, it wasn't Wayne Williams. And I don't know if it's him or it's the people from whatever he's partnering with. Um, how stuff works. Who did it. But they get some some good interviews about how the racial stuff played out with the investigation and some of the politics in Atlanta at the time. So I thought in the end, like looking at the whole thing, it was flawed. And there were some things that were, were absolutely difficult. Like there's a lot of credulousness to people who, to my ears at least, seem to have access to grind but, you know, he comes up with some interesting stuff. I think he recedes a little bit more. Like it's less, I couldn't believe I found this out yeah. or, you know, that kind of thing. And it's more what you'd expect from a like sort of more seasoned or more conventional podcaster, which is, you know, there's a little bit of the personality, but it, the real focus is on, you know, the subject matter. So as a whole, where are you on Atlanta Monster? Thumbs up or thumbs down, Toby? It's not even like a... I wish I could do thumbs sideways. Yeah. I feel like if I could divide up the episodes. Yes. And do thumbs up, like thumbs down Like there'd be some episodes, like half of them would be thumbs down and half of them would be thumbs up or I something. See. Yep. I mean, I think there's just a wide variety in the quality. I think the totality of it ended up being better than the first few episodes, which is what we reviewed. All right. Well, that's fair. It's very interesting to hear. We've had a lot of people ask if we've continued to listen. I haven't. Right. I stopped after a couple after we reviewed it, but it's nice to hear that uh, some of us have continued. Um, thank you for that, Toby. And also, uh, Kevin, I also need you to read this for me. <laughs> True crime update. At the urging of many of our listeners and just before tonight's taping, Kevin and I sat down to watch that Fox special, OJ, The Lost Confession, question mark. In this show, host Soledad O'Brien sits down with publisher Judith Regan, OJ prosecutor Christopher Darden, and others, including former FBI profiler and podcaster Jim Clemente, to watch a previously suppressed interview in which OJ, quote, hypothetically, confesses to murdering Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. I just remember Nicole fell and hurt herself. And uh, this guy kind of got into a karate thing. And I said, well, you think you can kick my ass? And I remember I grabbed a knife. I do remember that portion, taking a knife from Charlie. And to be honest, after that, I don't remember. Except I'm standing there and there's all kind of stuff around. And um, um, What kind of stuff? Blood and stuff around. You know, we, you know, I hate to say this, but this is hypothetical. I'm right, sorry. Right. I know we got to back up again. Right. <laughs> it's know. okay. So, Kevin. Yeah. Thoughts. It was really interesting because we, we knew that this was around, but hadn't had a chance to see it. The setup was such instead of it just being um, all of sort of the raw tape from the original interviews, it was sandwiched around this analysis and, and um, panel, this panel that gave each of the different segments some context. Yeah. And I thought that was really good. Uh, a, I like Sterling K. Brown better than uh, Chris Darden. <laughs> better than real Chris Darden? Better than Chris Darden. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the panel was really good. I think uh, Jim Clemente was great in sort of like analyzing language, which is this is really what we're talking about. Jim Clemente was very restrained in this. Yeah, no, he, I mean. Which is good. He, he does know his stuff. And this is like a great example of a case that all of us are watching this trying to pick apart what he says and, and how he says it. 
Yeah, no, I actually had the same reaction. I think that is a hard format to pull off. They basically played this raw interview tape and then went back and forth from the panel to the tape. I think, you know, Soledad O'Brien did a very good job handling this. It's salacious subject matter. She had uh, one of Nicole Brown Simpson's best friends in the studio. She did a very good job saying, like, I know this is hard, but, like, let's talk about it. And if you're interested in this case, I think it's worth a watch. And he, in my opinion... 100% confesses to this murder in this interview. Do you agree? Oh, I think so. I think so. And one of the interesting points, Laura, is that in the beginning, I mean, we all are waiting for the midpoint so he can talk about the murders. But his own recollections of the domestic violence, that he doesn't see as domestic violence, but the way he speaks about it, it, um, I thought was very telling as well. Yeah, yeah. He seemed to kind of have his own take on the world. And, um, you know, it, it reminds me of it. Like, as I was watching the beginning and he's talking and he's kind of trying to explain the way everything played out in the beginning of the relationship and everything. You know, it's like back when I was doing defense work and somebody would give you their version of why they got arrested. And yeah. you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> OK, I know that makes sense in your mind. I know it's not true. But uh, yeah, he, he, he kind of had his own own thing going on there. Yeah, and in his hypothetical murder story, Kevin, he makes up a character called Charlie. Makes up, maybe he was there, there. yeah, Charlie. was there with him at the time of the yeah. hypothetical murder, and yep. Charlie is so clearly just O.J. Simpson. In this hypothetical it's situation, It's so yeah. strange. It's so strange. Anyway, if this is a case, I'll say to our listeners, if you're interested in this case, I mean, it, they show the thing that Judith Regan, the publisher, this was a suppressed interview that she conducted with him around the publication of his book that didn't get published, but then later the rights were acquired by the Goldman family. Right. Uh, so they forget to mention in this. Which they don't yeah, mention, guess, but like yeah. the Goldman family actually did acquire the rights and the book was published in a deal and then they ended up getting money and donating it to... Uh, all the legal stuff and the kids and all that stuff. Anyway, he is talking with Judith Regan, the publisher, and she's on this show in retrospect talking about that interview. Yeah. So she provides some context as to what she was thinking when she was sitting there just nodding as he was saying all these crazy things, which is interesting. But I have to say, for as salacious a topic as this is and as corny as this could have been, it was actually like pretty well done. I actually thought it was, like for what it is, pretty good. I agree. All right, good. Uh, One final update, Kevin. Can you please read this for me? True crime update. Guys, big news from our favorite cult this week. Yeah. And I'm just going to read the headline from The Guardian that sums it up. Scientology launches its own network, just like regular television, only more terrifying. see a lot of this where they put their hands over their eyes and look inside the window and they're like what is this the guardian goes on to say that the programming which will stream on direct tv apple tv roku google chromecast and an app includes shows called meet a scientologist voices for humanity and l ron hubbard in his own voice laura bricker thoughts Yeah, no, because here's my theory. They're like tracking us. So the minute you watch something, they're going to know you watched it. And then you're going to think it's the Jehovah Witnesses at your door and it's a Scientologist. So I'm not watching. Toby, uh, what do you think about this whole like Scientology network rollout? Are are you going to give it a shot? Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) What I think is interesting is that they've got all these actors, well-known actors who are Scientologists who supposedly are will do whatever for the church. Uh And it seems like you could put together some pretty good programming 
with those people if that's what they wanted to do. It sounds more like they're trying to uh, do bullshit recruiting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they could put The Handmaid's Tale season two on the Scientology network, right? Yeah, bring back Jenna Elfman. <laughs> yes, which, by the way, I'm super What's excited for to? Handmaid's Tale season two, by the way. I don't know yeah. about you guys. Super excited about no. it. Kevin, what do you think? Are you going to watch the Scientology network? Nope. Next question. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really not going to lose any sleep over missing... Scientology TV. I'll be sleeping on my sheets, my Brooklyn and sheets. <laughs> I didn't know where that was going. Yeah, Brooklyn and, as you know, was founded in April of 2014 by a husband and wife team. Not by L. Ron Hubbard. No, no. Vicky and Rich Fulop, they, I guess, were staying in a hotel and they had like these really luxurious sheets and they're like, why the heck can't you and I get sheets like exactly. this? Like, 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 why also can't we have a mini bar in our room? Real question. Yeah, well, now we have both. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our friends at Brooklinen. They have a lot of different colors and patterns, but not too, too many. Toby Ball, you have Brooklinen sheets. Do you remember what it was like going online to the website and selecting your favorites? Yes, because I went on there with my wife. We checked it out. It's all, at least when I looked, there wasn't anything like totally outrageous and stuff. We got very, we got what, white with. Uh, some navy polka dot and then a sort of earth toned duvet cover. It's very, uh, it's very nice. Very tasteful. Yeah, they have a, a wide selection, but not so large. It's not overwhelming. Yeah, the, and you, you can mix pick. and match between the colors and the patterns. It's all very tasteful. I love it. The thing about Brooklyn and sheets, and you asked me something about it like the other week, and I, I didn't respond very well. But it's kind of like when I put on, I borrowed my friend's pair of glasses one time, and then mm -hmm. suddenly I could see all this stuff in the distance. And I like realized that other people like that was something that was possible. And I was just kind of putting up with the fact that I couldn't see very well. It's kind of the same thing with the sheets is that I've been like sleeping on these like not like all that comfortable sheets for years and years and years. And then you get like a good pair of sheets. You're like, oh, man. Like, I had no idea that this was one of those things. Yeah, my life has sucked before now, basically. <laughs> I've been blind. I've been blind to comfort. Brooklyn and sheets are the best, most comfortable sheets for the nearsighted and farsighted. <laughs> and now Brooklyn has an exclusive offer just for Crime Writers on listeners. You can get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code CRIME, crime. at brooklinen.com. Brooklyn is so confident that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. But the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code CRIME, crime. at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code CRIME. Oh, so I couldn't read it because I was nearsighted. Brooklyn! <laughs> These are the best sheets ever. What else you got, Kevin? Well, when you do get up, you want to be refreshed to get started on a great day. You want to get a good breakfast, or maybe later on, lunch, maybe a little snack <sighs> afterwards. Is this going where I think it's going? I think so. It's a great time to have Daily Harvest. Yay! I love Daily Harvest. Yeah, for, if you don't know Daily Harvest uh, Oh, is, we know. Oh, you know? <laughs> You know, you just pull Daily Harvest out of the freezer. You put in some water or some co coconut almond milk. And or you regular can, milk. You can heat, blend it. You, you get smoothies, soups, breakfast bowls, sundaes that are plant-based, filled with frozen superfood. It's fantastic. Those smoothies only take about 30 seconds. Soups are ready in five minutes, and they're fantastic. Rebecca, tell me about the last time you 
noshed on some daily harvest. Well, as you know, I'm addicted to the uh, cacao avocado smoothie. Mm-hmm. I have become so daily harvest attuned that I've started seeing like when celebrities are carrying around daily harvest things oh. in magazines and on TV. We saw something on TV. You're like, we did a don't yeah. come quote it. I won't. All right, but I may have recently seen a big pop star who's on a new pop. TV singing show, sipping from a Daily Harvest. I was like, that's Daily Harvest. <laughs> I feel like I know the brand very well. I love the smoothies very much. They're very filling. They're very healthy. And they make me feel good about myself. So go to daily-harvest.com and enter promo code CRIME, crime. to get three items free in your first box. It's a good deal. That's promo code CRIME, crime for three free Daily Harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. Daily-harvest.com. Moving on. Netflix cannot stop turning out gripping crime dramas. This week, we're talking about Seven Seconds. A black teenager was left out in the cold to die. No one cares about Brenton Butler. His life does not factor into the equation of this city. I'm doing my job. Job's locking up other cops now. I didn't become a cop to break the rules. I'm gonna turn myself in. You're a good cop. You and me, we're a dying breed. And we take care of our own. I want you to think about what kind of father you'd be behind bars. Seven Seconds is a 10-part series set in Jersey City, where the view of the Statue of Liberty is literally her backside. A black teenager is struck on his bike by a distracted police detective, and his commanding officer decides to leave the victim and cover up the team's involvement. The drama explores the effect of the crash on the teen's parents, the driver and his partners, and the alcoholic DA assigned to the case. Will the newbie investigator uncover who the real perpetrators are? And will justice be served in an era where white cops with black victims are rarely held responsible? Disclaimer, there's almost no way to talk about this series without discussing some spoilers. So if you'd rather hear our review without the discussion, just look at the show notes for the timestamp to which you can skip to get our thumbs up or thumbs down review of seven seconds. Venus Sud, the creator of The Killing, is also behind the show Seven Seconds. Now, Toby, did you ever see The Killing? I watched a bunch of episodes of The Killing right after I had knee surgery. Right. So I was pretty, like, <laughs> amped up on painkillers. Right. And I don't remember much about it. Okay. Well, uh, maybe we should restart this segment. <laughs> no, I'm just going to leave it at that. Let the listeners soak that in. Kevin, you and I watched The Killing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we loved The Killing. Yes. Yes, we did. For the most part, there were some frustrating things about it. We also loved it. Right. This show is for me, strikingly similar to The Killing. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I think so. And we're talking about the American version of The Killing, which was one of the, actually you know, one of the first Scandinavian yes. noir adaptations that we'd seen. I think that there's an awful lot sort of in the structure of this limited series, as was in The Killing, most notably that when, when we look at the crime, we do have you know the flawed investigators. Uh, this time it's an open mystery, so we know what happens. But what this does and what the killing did is the uh, the f- the family of the victim. Domestic suspense, right? It isn't just they're there for some tears and then they're gone. It ends up being a real character study in them as well about where their relationship goes and how they're affected. So it's not just, oh, well, here they are sort of the innocent victim. They have their own problems, too, and their, their own dark secrets as well to explore. And th- those are two things that they have in common. And those are some of the best things that they have in common. There's another really big thing that this show has in common with The Killing. And and for our listeners who haven't watched The Killing, it was originally an AMC show. And then for the final season, it was picked up by Netflix. So I believe there are four 
in total, seasons of the killing. Yeah. The first two seasons are about the same case, and then there's there's another two seasons I think after that. Anyway, it's 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 a really stark and interesting show. But one of the things about it is the flawed characters in the killing, including the cop investigating the case. And in this series, pretty much every character is damaged, unlikable. You have the the drug cops who are doing the cover-up. You have the drunken prosecutor. You have the DA who's cheating on his wife. Um, you have the uncle of the victim who we really want to like but can't seem to find his way. You have the parents of the victim. The dad is especially, you know, kind of grapples uh, with things. Laura, is it overkill to use so many flawed characters across the board in this show. I had to say when I started the show, I was I was kind of depressed. I was like, oh my God, like everyone in the show is a horrible person. And I and I felt like they were also playing on stereotypes with the way that they made each character so flawed. But then, you know, there's something about it. You keep hoping that somebody's gonna have some sort of redemption as you go along. And I found myself the only character I liked um, that I didn't find to be as like unlikable and horrible as the rest was Fish, the detective. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got to um, talk about him. I, he was like my favorite. I loved him. And I was like, okay, this guy's clearly going to be the hero of the show because he's the only one who's not just like damaged beyond repair, even though he also is somewhat damaged. Did, did you recognize the actor, Laura? Did you remember something we've talked about earlier on this show? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, the actor who played Fish also played the preacher in Ozark, something that, a connection we didn't oh. make until like the very final episode. Oh. Thank you, IMDb. Yes, thank wow. You. Yes, I know. Very, very I different character. I did not character. make that connection. Uh, Toby, what did you think of this character, Fish? I mean, one of the things that struck me about him was the uh, the way they established the character. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Character development, if you can do it in one scene efficiently, and well can sometimes be the best kind of character development and they did it in one scene with fish when we meet him at his house and he's taking care of all of those decrepit sad dogs yeah. did you like this character also yeah i think it was good in that at first you're not quite clear how to take him because he's being such a jerk to uh kj yep the prosecutor uh, about yep. her drinking but then as things go on you kind of you get more of an appreciation for him, and he does kind of emerge as a good guy, uh, despite the fact that he sometimes makes decisions that you wish he wouldn't make. Yeah. I think of, of all of the characters, he was the one that seemed least predictable. No, no, I agree. He's imperfect, but interesting. Kevin, you? Well, I, yeah, it's a little bit of a crime that this is the first character we get into because there's so many other great characters yep. and for uh, actors of color as well. But Fish was really interesting to me because this is a cop who is funny, but in the exact opposite way that we always see cops. You know, they're the, they're the, the world-weary cop that, you know, they're making the snide remark. That's where their humor comes from. This is a guy who's who's just has like a, a bright personality, a funny personality. We don't, we don't associate that with – with cops, and there's a lot of cops that I know. It's like I just—he just reminded me of yeah. that, and we don't ever see that, you know. And he was cracking jokes and whatnot, but he was just being like the same kind of guy that you would have around the office, and that, and that was really interesting to put him in that, and that that made him the bright spot with all this darkness. Yep. And so you need that light so that dark can be dark. Yes. And so that, you know, that's kind of what he brought to it. But I really liked Fish. No, I, I did too. And I think that even the backstory, you know, we see a glimpse of his story where he's like fighting for custody of his kid and mm-hmm. then kind of realizes in the course of the show that like he's fighting for something the kid doesn't want. Yeah. And he's just like, okay. 
Like he That's is, the moment where you expect this other thing to happen. He's the sees, most, yeah. probably of all the stereotypes we see in this show, he's the one who bucks the stereotypes the most. You know, I, I will say at the beginning of this show, and, and we'll get in a second to where the storyline goes with the butlers, uh, the family of, of the victims. But I, I just want to start where the show starts for a minute, because for me... One of the things that I commented to you about, Kevin, after the first episode of this show, uh, the show opens, we know there's a victim, we don't know who it is, and then we cut to the shot of Regina King playing Mrs. Butler. She's a school teacher, and then we like see her driving a kid home from school, we see her going to church and singing in the choir, and then we see they're going, her going over to the house she just bought in Jersey City. And it really struck me how rarely we see middle-class black families on TV, not the upwardly mobile blackish black family, not Mm -hmm. the street kids you see in like all of the crime shows that we watch, but just like regular people of color living regular middle class lives and how rarely that's portrayed uh, on TV. And you have this like great example of it. And then, of course, they end up being the family of the victim. And we get this protracted grief storyline, which to me sort of undercuts the the thing the show was was doing there which was so made it so special initially i i don't know for me the grief storyline in particular yeah was protracted it was it toby what do you think was it was i know that you had thoughts about that that grief storyline as well yeah i mean it's kind of like grief porn right i mean you're just watching these people in this sort of exaggerated not that they wouldn't feel great grief but the way that it manifests, like a, it just goes on forever. And for me, at least, I didn't. It didn't seem like things were evolving a whole lot. And then there's also things like the guy, uh, the father, like taking a baseball bat to his kid's bedroom. Yep. I think there's this sort of stylized film way that you're supposed to grieve, and it's either being catatonic, which they are at times. Or it's like this, like absolute, like emotional release, like Sean Penn in um, that ridiculous Dennis Lehane movie, where he's like ten people are holding him back because he wants to see his daughter's dead body. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I had, I think I probably liked this whole thing less than everybody else, and I thought the whole grief thing, I thought the family dynamic was not as interesting as the amount of time they spent on it. Yeah. Well, they they did layer a lot into that. So, Laura, one note that you wrote to me was that um, we have a story here about two gangs. Can you just explore that a little bit? So the first scene of the show, we see this accident where Brenton Butler um, is riding his bike through the park and he gets hit. And initially, you know, even though the people involved in what was going on, like I could see a badge hanging around their neck, the way that they were, like, their body language and their demeanor, I was like, I think these guys are criminals. Like, and, and it turns out, no, these are the police officers. But they're like the white gang in this show. And, you know, and on the other flip side, we have the black street gang, which um, Brenton's uncle had been involved in before he went off and joined the military. And, you know, what sort of struck me about both of them is that they're sort of like, parallels between both of them in terms of like this code that they're following and this loyalty that they have to, you know, their leader. In in one case, it's the the police officer as uh, D'Angelo. On the other side, it's the gang leader who's in the wheelchair. And that sort of like family 
will take care of one of our own philosophy to how they're running their lives. But what I found ironic in this is that I found like the people that are, are selling drugs and, and, you know, that you initially think you would be more biased against, I actually had more sympathy for than the police gang as yeah. as this all played out. But I felt like there was a lot of parallels in terms of people within both of them coming from sort of broken homes or abusive backgrounds and whoever the leader was sort of taking that person under their wing and like, no, we'll take care of you now. You know, in, in the case of the police officer, it was uh, Jablonski, who was officer driving the car. As the series plays out, we find out he had a very abusive childhood. And so it's sort of like when we listen to Crime Town and we listen to how the boys kind of got pulled into the mob. It's the same sort of mentality. Yeah, I, I think good observation. The, the, the police mob connection is very thin here. I mean, we have even the wives of the cops. They're very much mirror like the wives in The Sopranos. They all sit around, yes. talk amongst themselves, look in the mirror, put on their makeup, talk about being a cop's wife. The same conversations we see in shows like The Sopranos about being a mobster's wife. And there were there was a lot of sort of like mafia symbolism, a lot of American crime symbolism. Kevin, can you talk about some of like the blatant overt symbols that they they had in this show? I saw really like three major symbols that that kept coming up. One was the dirty car. I mean, everybody's car. I mean, it, it's it's winter in the Northeast, and if you drive around, yes, your car gets covered with salt. Everybody's car was dirty, filthy, filthy, and it wasn't until sort of the spring, of course, that it's clean. But I think they were. It was on purpose. I think it demonstrated that everybody was soiled, mm. each in their own way, and it was a reminder of that. You know, there's a lot about father figures or parental figures. There was, there was all these sort of dynamics between, you know, Jablonski and his father, and then D'Angelo, at, you know, taking up Jablonski and sort of like that paternal thing he's putting on Wait, I'm going to say real quick, D'Angelo, flawed character in terms of how it was written. Mm-hmm. Fucking scary performance, right? That guy was yeah. scary. Yes. That was scared a, yeah. the yeah. crap out of me. Every time he was in the yes. screen. Even so realistic. He actually, so realistic. But he actually did very little that was scary himself until the very end. Like, he actually did. But just sort of this, this menacing his presence. His presence right, yeah. was like, yeah. like, so frightening. Yeah. Well, there's definitely a lot sort of, you know, again, with fathers and sons where the, you know, the, uh, Brenton, you know, his father, uh, I think it's Isaiah is, is the father's name. Yep. That's going on. And the other one, which was, I don't know if it was too obvious. Obvious. Yes, it was. But I know what you're going to say. The Statue of Liberty. Turning its back on Jersey City <laughs> and the people in well, the Well, yeah, story. I mean, as sort of like that, it's a, a view of that. But also, look, every time they do these cutaways, like this in is early America. on. No, but you, this is America. Right, this is America. <laughs> but you'll notice in the first couple of episodes, the, the cutaway is, again, New Jersey side. You don't ever see the front of the Statue right, of Liberty. Right. At the end, they finally do a cut around where you see the front of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. And I think it's supposed to imply, like, okay, America, but of course, well, the whole, we get to the, the whole, end. every time you see the Statue of Liberty in anything, you're supposed to be reminded this is America. That's what that symbol means. And then every time that it's the back, it's like America has turned her back on us. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty ham-fisted symbol. I think, but it's obvious that you have to put it in. <laughs> Toby, do you agree? I heard you take your microphone off mute there for a second. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> don't they even say it at one point? Doesn't somebody make some comment about? Yeah, it kind of comes up, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it comes up in the trial for sure. Um, but I, let's let's just talk about like the crime in the story, right? Because um, one of the things that's interesting to me about Seven Seconds is the structure of it. It climaxes and kind of has a, a, like an end 
of sorts right in the middle of the series. As you mentioned, Kevin, it's an open mystery. We mm-hmm. know who did it. And there are a lot of like moving parts and pieces. And for the first like five episodes, we're watching these pieces come together. And then the cops figure it out. I mean, the, the good cops figure it out and the DA and the mom figures it out at the same time through the magic of uh, television timing. And there's the arrest. And boom, that's where most shows would end, right? Mm-hmm, right. And then we get like, what, five episodes of denouement of like after effect? Like two after the arrest, yeah. I That's think it was more than, it felt like more than that. Did not feel like more than that. Maybe to you. <laughs> so before we get to that climax of the arrest, there is this, you know, investigation. And this, mm-hmm. this it's like really constructed and they use a lot of like TV tropes here and, and investigative magic that we see in TV shows. Toby, what do you think about the premise and how the investigation unfolds in seven seconds? I think the premise itself I had some trouble with like I think it's I, I think it's dangerous to say I wish it had been done a different way and therefore I'm going to say I don't like it but I do think sort of based on what this show seems to want to be commenting about the idea that a cop would accidentally hit and you know as you find out just injure at the time a black kid that this would somehow be something that was going to ruin his career to the point where they had to cover it up and, and go to all these great lengths. It seems a little ridiculous, quite honestly. Can you just explain why that seems ridiculous? It seems ridiculous because it seems that when police like intentionally kill black kids, there's not a whole lot of consequences. And the obvious thing to do would have been to try and save this kid and just be like, yeah, it was an accident. You know, the kid came out of nowhere, didn't see him. And I hit him and I'm sorry. And things would have just moved on. I think if they were trying to make this comment about, you know, the way that particularly white police officers and their actions towards African-American, particularly, you know, young men uh, play out, like, why wouldn't they have these guys just brazen it out? Because that, that, that seems to be more accurate. Yeah, the, the, the cover-up seemed harder. To me, it would seem like it would be more frustrating for the family that this thing happened and these guys are just saying, yeah, yeah, we did it, no big deal. And I can't get, I can't get justice for my kid, despite the fact that everybody knows what happened. It's just not acted upon. So, you know, it, when you're starting from nothing and you want to make a certain point mm-hmm. and you can set up any scenario you want – like that scenario doesn't seem to me to get at the heart of what I assume they're trying to make a comment upon. Mm-hmm. I agree. So in the beginning, you know, I'm thinking when they're covering it up because, you know, it, it's like we're white cops. We ran over this black kid uh, based on the climate of what's happening in the country. We're going to get fried for this. The takeaway after I watched and I saw the conclusion is like, yeah, they say that. But I honestly feel like it was more like they were like covering their own asses because they had all the little side gigs going and they were making a pretty good living, even though they were cops because of what they were involved with. And I think the actual sort of tragedy of race in the story comes into play when the case plays out in the court. Mm-hmm. And you not only realize that the jurors value this boy's life less than they would if he was a white boy. But you also realize that your perceptions about some of the police officers that were involved were not even accurate Mm -hmm. um, when you find out what really happened at the end. And I also think that the title, you know, yes, the, the case unfolds within seven seconds. But I think that the seven seconds 
also relates to a big reveal that happens at the end, you know, what what actually happened after the accident. And I think that that's where the seven seconds... Seven seconds was how long it took for someone to make the right call or the wrong call. Kevin? Yes. Their points are right. I think, though... In, in the context of this uh, this the series, the, the kid that was on the bike could have been named MacGuffin mm. because the accident is just the starting point to get all of this drama going. Yeah, maybe the better idea, you know, if you're you might say if you're a white cop is to just like go for it. But I much prefer as a storyline the, the way it went, mm. uh, because I thought you know, it's a more unexpected story. That yeah, one. I, I do think actually, I think he was more than a MacGuffin because I think that, and here was my, here's my quibble with seven seconds. The structure of it felt strange to me. There is this big reveal about Brenton that happens in the second half of the series mm-hmm. that isn't hinted at at all. In the first yeah. half of the series, it's not it's not it came out of nowhere. It's not hinted at. It's not like you know. There's all the speculation about whether or not he's in a gang, and what we actually find out is happening. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. that when we find that out, we say, "Oh, that makes sense," right? Right. Yeah. In the same way, like that seven seconds reveal at the very end is really good. I think. I mean, to me, that's like, oh, yeah. that's good because we had a hint at the beginning that we're not a hundred percent sure what Jablonski did. And you can look back and realize, oh, they never actually showed us what happened after the accident. They never. But the reveal about Brenton, it kind of comes out of nowhere. But then we dwell on it for a couple episodes at the end, which is all good. I mean, the content is good. The family dynamics in the show, in the victim's family, the Butler family, to me, are very, very good. And really supported by some incredible performances by those actors. As you know, I'm a huge Regina King fan. Mm -hmm. She crushes it in this show. The actor who plays uh, the dad crushes it in the show. The stuff is good. What feels weird to me is the order of it. Like, it's very linear. And this is one of the only shows we've watched, I think, in a really long time that's like, it's so linear. It's almost linear to a fault. Where this happens, and then this happens, and then this Mm -hmm. happens, and this happens, and then this happens. Mm-hmm. And there are weird climaxes, like the structure, like there's a climax in the middle and then there's like a whole gang thing. that It's like, I don't know, Kevin, what did you think about the structure of the show? Well, I think I think it was OK, like you say, linear, linear in the way it, it, it was. I think, you know, you get to watch everybody's hair grow. You do. And, and you actually kind of do. I just have to think, though, and Laura is probably going to want to like go apeshit on this, but the trial <laughs> was kind of like, yeah. uh, like, like, how would that even happen? No. I mean, all these things I, like, well, the neighbor said, and, you know, it's like, no, you would have, this is why the trial took three days. That would have been a witness. Oh, yeah. would have. Yeah. It just was crazy. That was like the most ridiculous part. Back to, I'm going to lead into that, but I'm first going to say what you were talking about, Rebecca, with the structure. I really feel like the series was like two or three episodes too long. I think they could have gotten the job done in less episodes because um, they had some tangents that I felt like were interesting, but I don't know if they were necessary to tell the story that they wanted to tell. But the courtroom scenes, I was like, what the F is going on here? Like, this is not how court plays out. Like, you would think with all of the police procedurals and courtroom dramas and like John Grisham books, whatever, that are out there that the show writers would know. You don't just like go up and just start talking about what happened when it hasn't even been introduced as evidence. And and it just the way that they were questioning witnesses, I was like, it was just so unrealistic. And the fact that that dragged out over several episodes, I was all done with that part. Um, it was just infuriating because it was so inaccurate. I have a question 
Suppose somebody says, okay, I'll take a deal. Would you then put them on the stand in front of a jury? <laughs> oh, yeah. To, like, as part of the deal and, like, be surprised it all goes wrong? Like, when, do, when does that happen? The whole thing was ridiculous. I, you know, the series was good up until the courtroom part. And then I was just like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, this is just ridiculous. There was a couple. I mean, another thing that was totally unbelievable to me in this series that also didn't ring true was how... You know, in the beginning, KJ is such a functioning alcoholic that she's drinking during the day, that she's shaking when she's not drinking. And then, poof, just like that, she decides to get on the case and she's not drinking and she's not having, like, all these withdrawal symptoms and she's, like, totally fine, except for a few little, you know, falls off the wagon. I'm like, that was not realistic to me at all. Yeah. But can we talk about KJ just as a character for a second? Because I think this was, first of all, who makes a better sad face? Than oh, her, the disappointed, you're disappointed in me face. I think that was a really great performance. All right, I, I understand. So many good performances in this show. Yeah, I mean, so I, many good I, performances. I get that maybe, you know, she, sh- she should be drunk. She shouldn't be drunk at this point. And, you know, okay, her karaoke is bad. Well, that's part of it. But I just think as a character that isn't sort of written well or isn't really there in the first episode, she just takes off after that and really carries. I mean, I think she's the lead actress of this. Listen, I will say that for. It's many structural flaws. The performances in this series are just, they're they're over the top good. Everybody across the board of this show is good. Even the characters that I hate, that I want to get off the screen immediately because they scare me, Mm -hmm. super, super good. There is one performance, and I I don't think I have the actress's name written down, Um, the young actress who plays their secret witness who has a terrible and potentially completely unrealistic and out of place conclusion to her story in the series, which frankly was to me the most shocking moment of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So good. So, yes. so, so good. good. I, I just think that, you know, sometimes you look at a body and this is almost like an act. This is when I say like it reminds me of the killing uh-huh. because the killing. I don't know, Kev, we never talked about it on this show it was before we started this podcast. So we watched the killing it was so frustrating. You know, the earlier mm-hmm, seasons, right. the whole thing was frustrating. But do you remember how good the people were who were in it? Right. But the story was, it made us want to shoot ourselves watching the killing. <laughs> and this is almost the same thing. Like, it, it's so frustrating. And, like, the decisions yeah. that the story writers made and the way they put it, it's just so frustrating. But you kind of can't stop watching it because the people who are in yes. it are so good. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what I sent you a text. I said, it's infuriating. And addicting, and I can't stop watching it, but I'm so infuriated <laughs> while I'm watching it. But yet, I'm still watching it. So yes, I agree. All right, well, I think we're at the, the part of the show where, you know, without giving too many more details out about seven seconds, we should just probably tell our listeners whether or not we give it a thumbs up or thumbs down, should they watch it or shouldn't they. Mm-hmm. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Uh, seven seconds on Netflix, thumbs up or thumbs down? What do you think? Thumbs up. You know, it, like I said, it was infuriating, but it was also a really good story to follow. It was something that as soon as the one episode stopped, I started watching the next episode. And I think I watched like the first five episodes in one night because I just kept watching. So I would say go for it, except you're going to yell at the TV like I did when you get to the courtroom <laughs> scenes. Uh, Toby, what do you think? A thumbs up or thumbs down for seven seconds on Netflix? You know, it, it's tough because I, you know, the acting is good. Like it definitely, there's enough stuff going on that you, that you want to continue watching. But on the other hand, it's just not that good. I don't think, you know, you compare it to something like the wire, whether you like it or not, it's kind of what you sort of 
judge things by. And as a matter of fact, I kept I kept having to remind myself it was Jersey City and not Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd give it a thumbs up in that you know if you just want to watch something for ten hours and and be entertained, I, I think that's fine. In the end, I'm not really sure why it was made. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it it just seems like a lot of money and good acting and good directing and all this stuff. But then the end result is like something that I feel like I've seen 15 times before. Mm. So, Toby, so is that a thumbs up or a thumbs down for you? Yeah, I, I guess I would just say just because it's like a thumbs up is like, yeah, sure. Feel free to go ahead and watch it. I'll give it a thumbs up. But it's not an enthusiasm. I don't think it's up. something that people are going to be talking about in five years. Mm. That's an interesting barometer you've been using lately. Are people going to be talking about it? In five years? <laughs> I like it. And, uh, you know, your comparison of The Wire is interesting to me because I actually, you know, I saw a couple of articles that that tried to make that comparison. But I was actually thinking more of the night of when I watched this, you know, aside obviously from the comparisons to the killing, mm-hmm. you know, the single story of one crime and ripple effects on family and then, you know, the corruption in the justice system and a heroic lawyer, like a lot of a parallels there. Um, I this is tough for me because I loved watching it just like Laura so I have to give it a thumbs up for that reason anytime I want to watch the next episode of something it kind of automatically earns at least a an automatic thumbs yeah, up right. my enthusiasm for the series dramatically waned after the climax of the series and the denouement was very long and there were some storylines in the series that I felt were interesting and important but could have been folded in a more compact way uh, including the grief storyline including the storyline about we learn about the sun but still I, you know i gotta give it a thumbs up i enjoyed it i enjoyed watching it kevin you and i binged most of it in a sunday so how can i not give a thumbs up to that and i love the performances so thumbs up for me what about you kevin okay i'm gonna do this a lot shorter thumbs up <laughs> liked it a lot not gonna pussyfoot about it all right i liked it um, I thought it was flawed, but it really was gripping, and I think it says something about our moment in time. Yep. You know, I really would like to take those characters and just clean them up a little bit, give them a nice shave with our <laughs> their razors from Harry's oh, razors. F- I didn't know where you were going with that. That's yeah. good. That's Harry's funny. is all about a great shave at a fair price. They've stripped out all the unnecessary features and unnecessary costs to deliver customers one perfect razor at an amazing price. I Did we talk about our trip to Washington where we stayed in the hotel? And look, I, we, we just did this overnight to Washington. We flew, had to take a carry-on. That was it. So you can't put a razor in it. And I'm like, oh, okay, so we get to Washington. And I'm kind of thinking, what am I going to do? Because I didn't bring a razor. What do they have in the bathroom? Harry's razor. God damn it, it was Harry's razor. <laughs> And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. So you were so happy. I was so happy. Everybody is loving Harry's. Why not? It's it's You're going to love these blades when you use them. I know that I do. Over three million guys have switched to Harry's. Including my very handsome uh, son, Henry Lavoie, switches to Harry's. He loves it. Yeah, he took that razor with him. You can get Harry's trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com slash crime just pay for shipping you claim your free trial offer from harry's today that's a 13 dollars value for free when you sign up just cover shipping it includes an ergonomic razor handle five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade rich lathering shave gel and the travel blade cover so to get your free trial Go to harrys.com slash crime right crime. now. That's harrys.com slash crime. crime. What else you got, Kevin? 
Well, we have uh, support today from that meal kit delivery service known as HelloFresh. HelloFresh. They deliver step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy if you're very busy like Laura Bricker. Like Laura Bricker? Like Laura Bricker. Yeah. You don't have time to go shopping and get those great meals. Laura, tell us about delivery day at your house and how easy it is. So, you know, election day, very busy day when you are a journalist working in a small town, hyper local community covering election results. Uh, The tradition is to go back to the newsroom. Yes. And eat super unhealthy pizza or other junk food that people bring in to like sustain you. But you know what? With HelloFresh, I got this delicious healthier option like a flatbread that came with chicken sausage and zucchini to put on top it was super fast to eat super delicious and you know what then I don't feel so stressed out about you know being busy and working and what am I going to make for dinner because it's arrived all in a box and it's all stuff you can recycle the packaging that it comes in and um, even better they send you a whole book with not only the recipes you received but all the other recipes so you can get some other ideas for other easy to make quick meals during the week yeah each balanced dinner is less than ten dollars a meal and there are three plans to choose from the classic the veggie and the family plus there are lots of one pot recipes for seriously speedy cooking and minimal cleanup so for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter code CRIME30. Crime30. It's for $30 off. Crime30. Crime30. That's HelloFresh.com. Offer code CRIME30 for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. Now it's time for a favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. The third time was not the charm for Linda Tracy Gilman. The 70-year-old Utah woman was charged with trying to hire a hitman to kill her ex three times. Mm. Last December, police arrested Gilman for asking a tenant and then an employee to kill her ex-husband and his new wife. 5000 now 100000 when the deal was done. They say while behind bars, she tried to get a white supremacist inmate to do the deed as well. Prosecutors dismissed the charges on the first two attempts, but when they heard about the third, they took her in. So here's my question for you, panel. What other activities don't fall under the, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again rule? What do you think, Laura Bricker? Well, in the spirit of the week we've had here, where we had a gigantic storm slash blizzard, um, and we all got like two feet of snow for the most part, I'm going to go with a little story I heard about some local boys who decided to try to ski jump off the roof of their house (laughs) and ended up in the ER. Um, So I would say... First time, yeah, don't try it again. Roof, ski jump, not a good plan. <laughs> what do you think, Toby Ball? Uh, it, what other activities don't fall under the at first you don't succeed, try, try again rule? Uh, sword swallowing. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> a very compact answer. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm going to actually go with a Toby Ball related answer. Mm-hmm. When you drink one giant Moscow mule with Toby Ball in five <laughs> minutes, <laughs> do not... Try, try, try again, (laughs) as I have done, regrettably, on more than one occasion. Uh, Kevin Flynn, what about you? Uh, What activities should you not try, try, and try again? Taking on Crime Riders On and the podcast Madness Bracket, (laughs) bitches! (laughs) We will F you up! (laughs) We'll wipe the floor with you, right? Yep. All right, Laura Bricker, before we end the show, do we have a Cat of the Week this week? (laughs) 
Well, we have some dogs. Oh, uh, yes. My Jillian, favorite kind of animal. Yes. Yep. We've got Jillian Byron. She says, I'd like to submit. She sent some nice little pictures. I'd like to submit my dogs who have known each other each for 11 days and already sleep like a heart for cat of the week. Their ears stick up like cat's ears and they sleep a lot also like cats. They are very cute little dogs and they're having a lovely little nap, much like my cats have been doing, you know, ever since the snowstorm began. Well, Arbrecker, that's a very sweet story, but you will never convince me ever that a dog being like a cat is better than just a dog being like a dog. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're just never going to convince me of it's that. the only way I'm going to embrace a dog. <laughs> Laura, you own a dog. What a horrible thing to say. Uh, Laura Bricker, if, if listeners want to reach out to you and also berate you about the superiority of dogs over cats, how can they find you online? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if listeners want to tweet to you, uh, perhaps give you some tips to make that sword swallowing a little bit easier, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn. If our podcast challengers want to reach out to you and throw some uh, shit talk in your way, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Aquaman. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reblevoy. You can tweet to our show at Crime Writers On and join the fine folks on the official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group or just go to our regular old Facebook page. Subscribe now to get exclusive ad-free content from stitcherpremium.com slash crime and go to our website to sign up for our newsletter. If you love this show, tell a friend. More important, leave a review on iTunes. It makes a difference. Our theme song was performed by Rocksteady Freddy and the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble. And this show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, formerly known as Studio C. And before that, the closet in our basement where no one yet has hypothetically confessed to a murder. <laughs> on behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. later. Can I just say something before we start taping? Sure. Thank you guys for your graceful response to the out of context, erroneously forwarded email I sent you last week. <laughs> it was one of those things. I was like, I'm pretty sure she sent this to me in error, but on the off chance that she didn't, I yes. feel so I ought to get back to her and say something supportive. I appreciate it. I really do. An investigation that crosses every ethical, moral, and journalistic line of Wait, are we talking about Atlanta Monster again? Shut up. <laughs> Partners in Crime Media. Media.